Our reading this morning is from uh, the Gospel according to John, chapter 3. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter into the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, You are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me, when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven and returned But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a a lot of things that happen around here during the week that nobody knows about that lead to Sunday morning. One of the things that happened recently was an unmitigated disaster. We got some sort of weird message on our computer up there in the balcony that we had a stolen computer and everything was locked out. I mean everything. There's a lot of stuff up there. And I just wanted to say, first of all, Kudos to Adam who got all that stuff retrieved or most of it and got us back up and running. It was an amazing job. And second, if you see any mistakes, just blame it on that, okay? Because that was huge. Um, I, I really do appreciate the way people who understand technology can fix things. Thanks, Adam. Every time I get ready to preach from a passage of Scripture and the person who's been assigned to read it gets up to read it, my heart sinks. Now, you might think that negative. The reason it sinks is because they get up to read it, and I think, oh, I'm not really talking about that part. 
And there's so much over here I should have talked about. It's like this passage in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John could be a series that could go on for a long time. There's so much material there. So just like you're patient with whatever technology mistakes might show up, be patient with me, okay? I can't say it all. I can't explain it all. I'm trying to do my best. Have you ever had a conversation with someone? Maybe they came to your house. Maybe they came to your office. Maybe they went out with you for coffee. And the conversation just went on and on and on and on. If it was at your house, maybe way into the night. Now, that's not a negative statement. I'm just reminding you of what often happens in a good conversation. It gets very lengthy. Most people would surmise that stories like this in the Bible are just the tip of the iceberg concerning a much longer conversation. We don't know all the other things that Nicodemus said and Jesus responded to. But we have this concise description of the conversation. Perhaps because it was given to us through John, who maybe was there, or maybe not. Perhaps it was actually given to us from Nicodemus much later on when John wrote his gospel. Or perhaps Jesus told it to the disciples and said, this is how the conversation went. We don't know, but we can be certain of one thing. This is a synopsis of a very long conversation. So let's think about the context of this story for a minute. You notice right at the outset that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And we might conjecture why he came at night. We don't have real confidence to declare why he came at night. It could have been fear because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. It could have been secrecy because he didn't want anybody to know he was talking to this, this rabbi who was kind of off the rails. Or it might have been just a practical reality. He's very busy, and at night he comes to talk to Jesus. We don't know, but we do know he came at night. We also know about Nicodemus that he was a Pharisee. That's explicit. And what we know about Pharisees is that they were meticulous in terms of observing the law. Really meticulous. Here's an example of how meticulous a Pharisee would be. When it comes to just one law, the Sabbath day keeping in the Old Testament scriptures, the Pharisees would embrace a thing called the Mishnah, which was a part of the teaching, extended teaching of the Pentateuch. And in the Mishnah, there were 24 chapters dedicated just to Sabbath observation. Now, when you think back about what you know about the Old Testament, you realize there's not 24 chapters on Sabbath day observation. So they added to it. They studied the scriptures in such detail. They said, this is what it must have meant. And they built like what you might call hedges around the law so that they wouldn't go too far away. And they they built another hedge because maybe they thought they needed to be more secure in following the Sabbath. 
Here's just one illustration of Sabbath following. If you were a devout Jew in the Pharisaical tradition, you would know the rule that on Sunday, which is, of course, Sabbath for them, but on the Sabbath, you were not supposed to travel any more than a thousand yards from your home. Okay? That's not very far. However, they would write more laws into effect that defined what was available to you. And one of the laws was this. It's just fascinating. One of the laws was if you wanted to go more than a thousand yards on the Sabbath, before the Sabbath happened, you would take a rope and put it down to the end of the section that you wanted to travel to. Suppose you had a neighbor that was a thousand yards away and you really didn't want to hang out with them, but you had a neighbor who was a half mile away down the same street and you really liked to go to their house. You couldn't unless you put this rope out which extended the 1,000 yard rule. It was fascinating the kind of detail they went into. Now, one might say, well, look at those legalistic people. That's probably true. But in order to understand it more deeply and charitably, you have to say, look at those people who were committed to following God. They were doing their best. They were trying with everything they could to follow God. And they knew the revelation of God. Now, Jesus entertains Nicodemus at night. And what's interesting about Nicodemus coming, not just at night, but coming at all, is that when you think about the people that interacted with Jesus, you don't usually think about people of high standing. More often than not, you think people of common standing. You think of people who were poor. You think of people who needed healing. You even think of the publicans who were scorned by the Jewish population. You think of the sinners. But on occasion, people of high standing came to see Jesus. Remember the centurion that came to see Jesus? And said to him, my servant is very ill to the point of death. I've heard about you. I believe in you. Can you heal him? And Jesus basically said, sure, let's go to your servant's house. Apparently, the centurion wasn't actually addressing Jesus himself. He was sending a message through another servant. And when Jesus said, let's go to the house, the centurion message was, you don't need to do that. I'm a man under authority. I understand authority. I tell a servant to do this, and he does that. All you need to do, Jesus, is just say the word. My servant will be healed. This is a person of incredible power who had a great need. We also think of a few people like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. Something like Nicodemus. And he said, teacher, I've done everything I can. I've followed the law. What, do I, what else do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus saw straight through him, went right to his heart, and he said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, then come follow me. You notice Jesus didn't say that to everybody. He said it to the rich young ruler because he knew what his greatest weakness was, which was money. 
There's lots of people who came to Jesus. Nicodemus is just one of them. More often than not, we think about Nicodemus, we think of chapter 3, but it's not the only place he appears in the Gospel of John. He also appears in John chapter 9. You may remember this story. In John chapter 9, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, the Sanhedrin, and they send members of the temple guard to go out and arrest him. This is long before the crucifixion. And the members of the temple guard come back to report, and they say to these teachers of the law, we don't have him. And the teachers of the law are pretty upset. And they said, why not? They said, because we have never heard anybody speak like that. Now, the words of Jesus are profound, but I want to suggest that when they entered his presence and he spoke, they couldn't believe it. They were in awe. So they retreated and did not arrest him. Of course, the last time we hear about Nicodemus is in chapter 9 of John's gospel when Jesus has been crucified and he's being taken for burial. Nicodemus shows up in that part of scripture as a person who's going to assist in the burial, and he brings something like 70 to 100 pounds of pure spices, myrrh, and other things for the embalming of Jesus. Nicodemus was wealthy, he was well-known, and he was very, very important. Not only was he just a Pharisee, but he was a Sanhedrin member. That's the elite part of the Pharisees. It's like shall we say, the Supreme Court. And they had incredible power over the Jewish population to set laws and actually to condemn people for violation of the laws. Now, they had a limited amount of power because Rome was over them. But I want you to remember what kind of power they had. When Jesus' trial was coming up, Pilate, The Roman governor trembled in their presence. Why do I say that? Because they said, crucify him, crucify him. We've judged him. He's a blasphemer. According to our law, he must be crucified. And Pilate said, I don't get it. Why should I put this man to death? What crime has he committed? And the Sanhedrin and the rest of the people screamed, crucify him, crucify him. You know what Pilate did? He shook in his sandals. Why? Because they had that much influence and that much power, and it could start a riot with the flip of a finger. He didn't want to lose his governor's post with Rome. So he said, I'm washing my hands of all this. Go ahead, crucify him. That was who came to Jesus by night, Nicodemus. Now, that's the context of the story. What about the conversation in the story? First, the conversation is immediately about the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is all over the New Testament, more so than we even admit it being in the New Testament. 
The kingdom of God is huge. And when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he says, I've followed everything, but I still don't think I've quite got it. How do I get into the kingdom of God? And that's when Jesus gives him the response. Nicodemus, a person like the rich young ruler who has all his ducks in a row concerning the law, comes to Jesus with basically the same question. I've done it all. Tell me about this thing called eternal life. You seem to be an amazing teacher. Jesus, there's a response. Fascinating. He, in effect, acknowledges that Nicodemus has got it all figured out in terms of the law. He doesn't condemn him on that. What he says is, I tell you, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Why born again, Nicodemus says, and what does that mean? You know the story, I can't go back into my mother's womb. Jesus' retort makes a lot of sense if you understand the context. He said, are you kidding me, Nicodemus? You're a ruler in the Jewish synagogue, and you don't know what I'm talking about? Why would he say such a thing? Because it was common knowledge that when somebody who was a proselyte that became a Jew, became a Jew... They were said to be reborn or born again. Furthermore, in a parallel country, parallel culture, the culture of the Greek culture in Rome, the mystery religions often describe people as being reborn when they entered into a relationship with the gods. Jesus is in effect saying, you're very knowledgeable. Why are you pushing back on this and asking that question? You got to know what I mean. When we look at born again, um, we sometimes have a certain understanding of what it is in a singular way. We think about it as words that are popular in evangelicalism. What does the word born again mean? actually mean? It could mean one of three possible things. One way to translate it is that a person starts from the beginning. A completely radical transformation from the start. Another possibility is just the word again. In other words, a second time. Born again can mean exactly that. Born again could also mean, as we see from the text, born from above. And when you say born from above, what you realize is that somebody else did it. Namely God. Maybe it's helpful to understand born again with all three of those. All three of them have various ways of helping us understand what born again means. But in effect, Jesus was saying, the law is not enough. Rituals are not enough. If he was here today, he would say to you, church attendance is not enough. He might say to you, making sure you're here on the first Sunday of the month in this congregation so you can take communion is not enough. 
or for many others in other traditions, the Eucharist, the Mass, every single Sunday, it's not enough. It's also true today. All those practices, as good as they are, none of them is enough, says Jesus. You must be born from above. You must be born again. And if you're born again, you're going to inherit everlasting life. By the way, everlasting life is the phrase from the old King James Version and some of the older versions. But really, it's not the best phrase. The modern versions almost uniformly say eternal life. Why make a distinction? Well, quite frankly, as I age and things start to break down, and I'm not as good as I used to be, and I look at people who are far advanced from me in age, and I think to myself, if everlasting life just means to live forever, count me out. I don't like that future. <laughs> I don't want to forget everybody's name that I used to know. I don't want to get to the place that I can't walk. Count me out. If that's everlasting life. A life that just, like this one, goes on forever. But when I meditate on the phrase eternal life, my mind opens up to other possibilities. What I realize is that eternal life, as I understand it, begins right here and right now. Everything when I inherit eternal life is born anew. I think differently. I see the world differently. I walk differently. I have a different kind of joy. I have a different kind of peace. My world is turned upside down in the best kind of way when I receive eternal life from believing Jesus. But that's the only, the beginning. Because that eternal life that I've received from Jesus goes on eternally. And it just doesn't stop the way it is now. It's eternal, ever-growing understanding of love. Eternal, ever-growing understanding and experience of joy. Eternal, ever-growing understanding of peace. That's eternal life. Sometimes we have a notion of eternal life that's quite static. We did it. We checked the box. We're saved. Or we did it, we check the box, we die, and we go on to be with the Lord. All those things may be true. But what is missing frequently in our theology is that going on to be with the Lord means a new understanding of reality. It means a depth of grace that we haven't even touched. It means a depth of love that we haven't experienced. It means a peace that we can only imagine. And it grows and grows and grows forever. That's eternal life. And I'm so grateful for it. That it's not just everlasting life. There's one other part of the conversation I want to emphasize is Jesus' words. 
He, in effect, says to Jesus, says to Nicodemus, you know what? God didn't send me, the Son, into the world to condemn the world. Instead, he sent the Son, me, into the world to love the world so that the world might be saved through me. By the way, I think I mentioned it last week, but that had to be the most foreign concept Nicodemus could ever have heard. God loves the whole world. I I thought God loved his chosen people like Israel. And then maybe some people got the benefit outside of that. But the whole world? You, You mean, Jesus, God loves the Romans? You mean, Jesus, God loves the pagans? You mean, Jesus, God loves those priests who are getting people worked up into a frenzy in the mystery religions? You mean, God loves them too? Yes. He loves the world. And that's why I came. You know... It's an amazing story. He says, I don't need to condemn the world. The world is already condemning itself. I don't need to condemn the world because sin destroys. I don't need to condemn the world because moving away from God makes things all the worse. I don't need to condemn the world. The the world is condemned by its own behavior and its lack of belief. All I want to do is invite that world into believing in me so that it will not be condemned. Because the natural pathway of the human heart leads to condemnation and to sin. I've got another message. I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through me. That means the whole world, all people, even creation itself. What's the conclusion of the matter? I only have three things. Well, sort of. First, it's kind of a question. If Jesus' role was not to condemn individuals or the culture, why should that be our role? Maybe instead of condemning people's behavior, we ought to show them a better way. Maybe instead of shouting about them and their sin, we ought to let them see Jesus. In conservative evangelical circles, uh, the one from which I was birthed. We're really good at condemning. But why don't we just stop it already? The world is condemned. Let us show them a better way. Second thing is the notion of new birth. 
being reborn or born again. For just a minute, think with me about a birth that's physical. A birth that's physical doesn't happen overnight. First, it starts with fertilization. Then the pregnancy ensues. Then we care for the mother. And the mother cares for her diet, so she cares for her child. We're deferential to both, or we ought to be. And then somewhere along the way, things start moving. And then there's birth pains. And then there's a delivery. And then there's life. The unbelievable cry of life. Yeah, that happens in a moment. But a whole lot of things lead up to it. So my question is this. What stage of the process are you in? Are you, are you just being fertilized by the thought that maybe Jesus could be your Savior? Have you gotten to the place that you feel like you're surrounded by some people who believe it and are caring for you? Are, are you not quite yet there where the dramatic birth has taken place? The aha, the surrender, I love you, God. I don't know where you are in the stages, but if you stay on the path, new birth is going to happen. Don't walk away, stay with it, and new birth will happen. And it will come from above. The third thing is this. Once uh, you're born, you grow, right? So we have uh, our first grandchild in the family, a little boy, name's Teddy. I've heard him numerous times this morning, right over here. He, he talks a lot. He's active. He's bright. I love him. One thing that's fun about being a grandparent, if you don't like live in the same town, is every once in a while you see the baby, right? And we see Teddy about once a month, give or take. And every time we see him, we're amazed. He's doing different things. He doesn't look like the same child. I, I came in, and I realized he's sitting up all by himself. And I also realized that when I opened the door, his neck snapped around. Like, who's over there? He wasn't doing that last time he was at my house. And he's scooting now, almost crawling, scooting. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean... You want to encourage him, but you don't want to do it for him. So that's why there's a little squishy Cubs baseball on the floor. Which we keep usually at a little bit of a distance and then encourage him to go get it. 
But never once have I come up behind him and patted him on the bottom to get him up there. I want him to get it. And when the ladies aren't watching, sometimes I move the ball. (laughs) I love watching him grow and develop. He's moving from pure milk to baby food. That's fun. All of that is an analogy to say, once you're born from above, you should never stop growing. Like any infant, you should be learning new things all the time. You should be moving ahead. It's delightful. That's why so many times in the New Testament we hear those kind of phrases from Paul. He said, I, when I first met you, I could only give you milk because you couldn't take solid food or meat, but I want you to move beyond that. And Peter says, I, I want you, speaking of Christians, speaking of people who have been born again, I want you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's so much more to learn. And in the epistle to the Hebrews, the author says, I want you not only to learn, but I want you in community to spur one another on to love and good works. In other words, learn and challenge people around you to learn. Be together in this. Grow into the body of Christ. You've been born again. It's a wonderful thing. Now it's time to grow. You know, preaching sermons is not easy. I I guess you know that. And Dan and I especially, we struggle with how much to say, how much to challenge, how much to push. But I promise you this, we'll never stop challenging. We'll never stop pushing because that's what we're called to do. We're called to challenge one another, to push even when it's hard, because that's where growth happens. If you've been born again, keep growing. If you haven't been born again, it's very, very simple. Surrender. Yes, Jesus, I believe in you. But not just up here. I believe in you down here. And I'm giving my life to you. Among the most beautiful things about the evangelical tradition, which I inherited from childhood, is the notion that I and you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just belief in but a relationship with the living Lord. That's why Paul said in Philippians, more than anything else, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You know the word know there? It's a word that indicates intimacy, deep intimacy, not just knowledge. So I challenge you, If you believe, 
get to know him. Let's pray. Lord, you've been gracious enough to reveal yourself. You didn't need to. You've been gracious enough to show us the way. You didn't need to. You've been gracious enough to give of yourself through Jesus Christ. You didn't need to. You could have just been the omnipotent, omniscient, powerful God of the universe. But instead, love came down in the person of Jesus. And you gave us the assurance that our assurance could be in you. And that we would not only never die, but we would have eternal life. An eternal life that is full of everything we have here and so much more. Thank you for this promise, Lord. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.